0: Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. And uh, if you're a multifamily investor, whether you're active, passive, you've been in the industry for decades, um, maybe you're an industry insider, this is the exact YouTube show and podcast that has been designed especially for you to keep you up to date with all the latest information, information, research reports, data sets, and original opinions revolving the multifamily industry, commercial real estate, and the economy. Um, we've got an exciting special guest today on The Gray Report. Um, Paul Fiorella from the Yardi Matrix is here with us, um, an industry veteran that has just decades of experience of tracking commercial real estate markets. Love to kind of get his insights, what he's seeing on where the market is, where it's been, where we're going, and again, leveraging his experience um, so we can make some really good investing decisions going forward. Well, without further ado, let's get into it. All right, welcome back to The Gray Report. I am very excited to have Paul Fiorilla from the Yardy Matrix with us today. Um, Paul, I really appreciate you making the time, being on the show. Um, How are you doing today? Great. Thanks.
1: Uh, Appreciate uh, your asking me to be on the show and so happy to be here.
0: Absolutely. Well, just a little bit of background on Paul. Um, so Paul has 27 years of experience as a researcher and a writer in the commercial real estate markets. Um, he's previ- previously spent six years as vice president of research at Prudential Real Estate Investors, where he oversaw publishing and of outlooks and thought leadership research. Before that, he covered real estate capital markets and CMBS for 12 years at Commercial Mortgage Alert. And then he currently serves as a director of US research at Yardi Matrix, and the Yardi Matrix service provides data critical to professional property managers all over the United States. Paul, before we get into kind of your current role and how we're going to leverage all of your years of experience, just tracking CRE markets. First, I I wanted to ask, you know, what do you think the biggest differences between commercial real estate markets today compared to when you started um, almost three decades ago?
1: Well, I think one of the the big differences is is, uh, is, is research and, and the amount of information available. Uh, you know, back in when I started, you know, I started covering capital markets and CMBS, as you just said. And when I started, CMBS was kind of a new thing. Uh, I was writing about that. It had only been a product for a few years, and and I think over the years, you know, real estate had. Um, a reputation back in the day of being something where, you know, guys got together at the country club and did deals on napkins or something like that. Um, and you know, we had, it came out of the, uh, the savings and loan crisis. And, you know, there were all sorts of problems in the industry. And one of the things that really changed was sort of the, the, you know, increased, you know, institutional, uh, involvement, professionalism of, you know research and data um you know back in the 80s when a lot of these problems there were a lot of reasons for the snl crash and i wasn't in, in the industry back then i didn't get into the industry till the mid 90s but um you know th- there were a lot of reasons but, but one of the reasons was you know it you know div- right now if somebody does a development they've got you know pages and you know thousands of data sources is to tell them about demand about supply about you know the chances of success and i and i think that you know you know 30 years ago or so back when i started a lot of that information was just starting to become you know integrated and it's gotten a lot more integrated over time you know we you know you already for example you know, has databases on, you know, all the major property types, except retail. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's probably the biggest thing.
0: Yeah, no. I, just from my experience, you know, being in the industry, you know, I've been a real estate investor for about fifteen years. Um, really been full time in the commercial real estate industry for um, for a little over seven years. And just from you know me getting into the industry, I've seen an improvement in the data and the type of research that is out there. Um, but you know, still compared to public markets um, and other asset classes, um, you know, commercial real estate. It's still a little bit of a black hole i mean i'm thinking of you know cap rates as an example of where there's not a and, and you may hopefully will you maybe you can correct me but you know there's the a lot of the information resources on cap rate data isn't that great because it's not really public the uh, sometimes we're using surveys sometimes the um the surveys aren't even correct or you know uh, sellers or buyers or brokers may give even incorrect data at times um but Commercial real estate industry, from a data perspective, has come a long way. What do we have to do, you know, maybe over the next decade to do a little bit better, to make the markets a little bit more efficient, and just to have a little bit more transparency on what's going on in the markets?
1: Well, you know, that's a big question. <laughs> a big question. You know, with cap rates. Um, first of all, you know, what the right cap rate is, is an opinion, right? So the, the cap rate is you, you have a cash flow and then, you know, what's the proper return on your investment? Um, you know, that changes over time. And it also, it changes not only absolutely in terms of, you know, what people's perceptions are, what investors' perceptions are of what is the proper return, but um, it's based on other products and other, you know, what's the return in the treasury market? What's the return on foreign bonds? What's the return in the stock market? And also uh, what, you know, what other products are yielding? Uh, so there, you know, for example, you know, mezzanine debt and, and commercial real estate over, you know, again, going back to the times I've been in the industry, that has swung wildly in terms of What is the proper return for a high yield mortgage? And you know the returns got really thin in 2006 and seven, and you know then the market crashed, and most of that, a lot of that mezzanine debt, um, you know, just blew up and and, and turned out to be worthless. Um, And then there, you know, then there's more more of a, a risk premium. That you know the yield went up after that. But then, as the market got better again over the last decade, um, before last year, you know, the the returns on on mezzanine debt got squeezed again. Uh, lenders were not doing the high leverage that they did in two thousand six and two thousand seven. But uh, if you want to compete and you want to actually win business, you have to accept what the the returns are. And they got tight. Now they've kind of widened again. But um, so, you know, what the cap rate is depends on on market forces. But there's also a lot of different ways to calculate a cap rate. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, different people use different measures of it um that's so that's a very that's a very you know complicated that's and a you know, t- yeah we could have maybe, a whole you know we could have a whole you know day talking about this with different people in the industry
0: yeah yeah no uh one one person's cap rate maybe is completely different to someone else and it's a totally a perception issue in time and period um it, it's it's not easy um but i i am looking forward to the i guess the increased depth of just you know CR research and data and it seems like a um. There's been some more nuance and like a deeper level of analysis um, in the CRE research space that I've noticed over the last several years. That I think is very welcome, especially if, if you're an investor in other asset classes, especially in the public markets, than coming over to CRE. So, um, you know, and yeah. another another aspect of this is
1: that different types of lenders, different ownership groups uh, have different levels of information. So, privately owned real estate. There's no public, you know, they don't publicly release all their figures. So a lot of times you have to guess, uh, there are trade groups like NACREEP, the national council of real estate investment to fiduciaries that, um, compiles information from, I don't know, 50 or 60 of the biggest private equity funds. And they use that information. They aggregate it and they create indexes and returns that, that people in the, you know, investors in the industry can, can judge themselves against, um, or on the debt side, you know, CMBS is, is totally transparent, uh, because all the, you know, the cash flows, it all gets funneled into servicers and trustees that publish reports. So people in the industry can see that, but banks don't have to provide information about the performance of the loans on their books. Uh, so depending on, know who the investor is who the lender is you there's more or less information available in in the public to the public uh, in the market at large and you know so like REITs and you know another thing like REITs you know they have very stringent um, reporting requirements and so there's a lot more information about the performance of their properties than there are of most private property uh, property owners Although REITs, you know, a very small part of the overall commercial real estate market, so you we have enough information to be able to make some judgments, but we don't have information about everything all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. It seems like the the inf- there is more information is out there, but it's in kind of different buckets, and uh, and sometimes you have to kind of go looking for it, which is one of the reasons why we started the gray report and we tried to start aggregating this information. And I know it's also the reason why you all do what you do at Yardy Matrix is to try to put this all, not only gather all the data, but provide some some analytics to aggregate it and to put it into a very um, kind of useful form that is actionable, that investors, brokers, anyone in the industry can actually um, use. And just so on that, can you tell us just a little bit more about what you do at Yardi Matrix and then and maybe just right before that, for those that don't know, um, I'd be surprised if they're watching this because we were using your guys' research all the time. Um, what is Yardi Matrix for those who may be unfamiliar?
1: Yardi Matrix is the data arm of Yardi Systems. Yardi Systems is probably the biggest provider of property management software in multifamily, and and it's also used extensively in other property types as well. And we are the data arm of Yardy Matrix. So about ten years ago, uh YARDI systems bought a data, a multifamily data firm in, in Scottsdale, and that became YARDI's, you know, the, the beginning of YARDI's data operation. Uh, so YARDI has information, extensive information, uh, all you know, rent occupancy, you know, development information. Uh, You know, loan information on each more than 80,000 multifamily properties, more about 20 million apartment units in the United States. We also have a database of student housing properties and single family rentals. We, the the single family rental database is fairly new and it's the biggest database of SFR properties of anyone in the country. Uh, we also have, I have the largest provider of data uh, data in the self storage industry. We uh, track um, 33,000 33, self storage properties across the country, and we have a, also have a database, uh, a, 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 a relatively new database of RV and boat storage. Uh, which is an interesting up-and-coming niche sector. Yeah. Uh, And we have a national database of office and industrial properties, which, again, we have all, you know, information on the the rents and occupancy and and all that. And then, you know, clients of Matrix, you know, use it to underwrite deals, to do market research, uh, you know, for whatever, you know, there's a lot of different purposes that somebody uses uh, the data.
0: Yeah, so you know, there's a lot of data. There's some other data, Siri data providers out there. Um, but I guess what sets Yardi Matrix apart from some of those? I mean, just the fact that you're having the direct inputs from the properties, having Yardi systems, the property management software. I mean, that's a big differentiator. But right. what, what you know, what anything else that Yardy well, doing that's different? We have this
1: software. Not all of the information comes from the software. You know mm-hmm. the. Uh, Most of the data that we have is through, you know, sort of the traditional research methods of, you know, combing through public records, calling the properties. We have, you know, teams of hundreds of people that do that, and that's not part of what I do. But um, so we have that now in, in matrix clients also have access to what we call matrix expert, which incorporates certain things for example uh, expense information aggregated expense information so if you were underwriting a property you're buying a property in phoenix and you could look and say you know in a in a 3 or 5 mile radius what are the expenses of this property versus the average you know expense profile of similar properties in the same market uh, and that is actual information that comes from um, the the software our clients and it's you know aggregated and anonymized so you can't you know see the individual information of 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 our clients but it's incorporated into the matrix product uh, as a tool for users Uh, so there's a mix of uh, most of the information we have again it's sort of traditional and some of it comes from the software. We can also, you know, you look at the information from the software just to, you know, say, is there any difference between what we're getting on, you know, our clients, the actual data versus, you know, what we're getting in our our surveys and just kind of check to make sure that everything looks right. And as far as what makes us different, you know, you already has a very, you know, a very strong cultural, um, you know, kind of, um, You know, our our company's culture is to be uh, accurate, to be thorough and to, you know, to try and do the right thing in the market. You know, uh, you know, the different companies that do this have different standards and, you know, we kind of feel like, uh, you know, you can you can get data and look at aggregate data and. you know the individual, and then you know when you when you drill down to an individual property, find ah oh, you know this date is old or yeah. it might not be accurate. Uh, you know we try and make sure that you know everything is up to date and as accurate as possible. And uh, you know as far as you know what sets us apart, I think that's probably you know the main thing.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's what I think of also, um, especially when I'm thinking of some of the other, um, you know, data providers uh, or those that are are writing or putting out reports. Um, because sometimes I think about, I guess, um, the incentive um, behind some of the groups that are, would put out a report and, um, you know, what their end goal is. You know, for example, if there's a, uh, you know, a group that's a either a brokerage firm or a lender, um, and they're providing, you know, research and information. There's some great stuff out there from you know the brokerage shops and um, some lenders and other industry groups, but you know at the end of the day, you know um, you know they're still selling a product and in their cases they're trying to sell commercial real estate, whereas when I think of Yardi, you know certainly you all are in the business of um, you know selling your prop the Yardi system and property management software, but at the end of the day, um, if if what you're putting out ends up not to be accurate. Um, really that whole data arm and why people are trusting, it kind of goes away. And there's not a, as in, as a correlated incentive, I would say, between the users of property management software and oh, we want to make the market look as good as possible to encourage um, buying. So I, I guess is should um, investors and readers, should they be, I guess, concerned or what should they kind of um, keep a lookout for?
1: Look, and- oh, Everything goes into the credibility of, you know, the the authors of reports and uh i know like i've been in the industry a long time i have a lot of friends in the research world and i don't know anybody that is purposely you know writing spin and and not being you know trying to be honest i do think you know you mentioned brokers you know their business is based on deal flow you know, it's very rare that you'll see, you know, read a a brokerage report that says, you oh, know, this now's a bad time to buy, right? Yeah, <laughs> but exactly I, I don't want, you know, I don't want to question, you know, the motives of anyone else, but yeah. I do know that, you know, our research, you know, we attempt to try and, you know, give people uh, an accurate depiction of what's happening in the market. And you know, this is something that is difficult to achieve no matter who you are if, you know journalism whether you're talking about you know reading you know Bloomberg the New York Times Washington post uh, anything you know industry media um, you know trying to present an accurate picture of you know market conditions it's 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 a tricky thing and it's something that you know throughout my career not just at yard but my entire career I, you know I've, I've You know strive to do and i think our research publications um you know we do a good job in you know painting what we think is the most accurate picture of the market certainly we're never right about anything (laughs) you know we you know one of the things that uh you know we didn't predict you know what was going to happen with the pandemic because nobody did but uh you know one of the things that surprised us was you know the recovery you know when the pandemic happened um, you know, we would have thought it would have taken years for some markets to recover, but then the recovery was a lot quicker than we could have anticipated. But you know, those are the kind of things that you know when you're doing research and forecasting. You know, you, nobody has perfect uh, foresight, but you know, we we try our best to be accurate and to present as you know, uh, you know, uh, just accurate, but you know, try and present. A picture of the market that, you know, comports to what really is happening out there.
0: Yeah, well, in, in our opinion, you guys are de- have done a great job. Um, and it, like I mentioned, you know, we use um, yardy Research and the reports you're putting out very frequently. You know, they're, they're constant. Um, features on the gray report one because of the consistency and and one thing i want to mention that that you brought up is the addition of the single family rental um information that i think it was just this last year that you started including um and and that's been such a great data point to look at because while there's tons of correlation between single family um rental space and multifamily rentals, it's interest has been interesting to see the the difference, um, especially with the fluctuations in just the single family home market, but also as build to rent um, has become much more of a popular um, investment strategy and an asset class in itself. Um, it, it's just in, it's interesting to kind of just track, um, I guess, the convergence of kind of multifamily and single family and it's really single family as an investment asset class um all in its own i really but for more the the build to rent space so you guys you guys are doing a great job and that's exciting yeah
1: thanks i mean the single family rental market became kind of came into being you know after the global financial crisis yeah when you know banks had sort of like back in the 80s with commercial mortgages you know the S&L the, the savings and loans sold pools of mortgages that were defaulted you know commercial mortgages well in 2008 2009 you know banks had a lot of uh, single family mortgages that were um, you know defaulted and they sold big pools of them to investors and the question at the time was is this a trade you know that you know you hold these things until they the value recovers and then sell them or was it a long term business and there's been you know the, the market had that initial pop where you know all these Uh, properties were bought by institutions and it got a second, and then it, it kind of stayed the same, I'm not saying it didn't grow at all, but it, it kind of, you know, maintained it kind of plateaued at a certain level. Uh, and then it picked up again a couple of years ago, um, you know, institutions, you know, were looking for something where they could get some extra yield and multifamily was so much in demand that it was really hard. To buy multifamily, the you know the multifamily cap rates dropped really low, and even if even you know if you were willing to pay low prices, there was so much competition to buy multifamily product. You know, properties were put on the market and had dozens of bidders. So some institutions took to the single-family rental market as a way that they could actually you know put out money and get slightly higher yields. Uh, you know, but. The, the 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 issue though is you can't buy them in bulk anymore. You know, at back if you have to buy property there aren't massive defaults. So uh, in order to build your portfolio, you have to, you know, buy one property at a time. Now when you have, you know, a billion dollars to spend and you're buying a single family house one at a time, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's that's not that's, quite no as simple. One, no. So that's kind of where the build to rent started and became a bigger uh, a bigger in, uh, asset class because builders are like, hey, you know, this is just—it's inefficient. Uh, maybe, maybe the most efficient way we can add to our single-family rental portfolios is to, you know, build them ourselves.
0: Yeah, build a whole build, neighborhood. Build, build, and...
1: whole, build a whole neighborhood. So um, that is,
0: I think, it make the
1: fastest growth in that sector. I think right now.
0: And it's also you know, kind of following um some demographic shifts also. Um, you know, one from you know an investable asset class. That that makes a that makes a lot of sense. But also, you know, you've got we have millennials, which, you know, of folks of my generation, I'm 35 years old. And so if you have people around my age, you know, starting to get have get married, have kids, all this household formation and kind of getting that stage of life where many are considering, I'd like to go and maybe have it buy a house or they thought they were going to buy a house, but bottom line, they want some more space. Maybe they want to be out in the suburbs, a yard, have kids, their dog. And we haven't really been building enough housing stock, um, whether it's single-family homes or multifamily housing in the last decade or so. Um, but there is clearly – with millennials being um, the, the second largest, if not the largest, you know, generation followed or right next to the baby boomers, um, it, it's – in a way, it's kind of following that demographic trend and the demands for you know individuals, um, you know, forming families. Yeah. Um, so that does that kind of line up as well in your opinion? Yeah, you know,
1: my you're just a little bit older than my oldest son, right? And my my comment about that, I'm very bullish on long term demand for single family rentals because I think people want to live in houses, but I think the younger generation is not as interested as my generation was in owning a house. Uh, you know, when I was, you know, in my 20s, you know, the cultural kind of view was, hey, if you were a successful person, you would own a house. If you were in an apartment, you probably weren't that successful. You didn't make enough money or whatever, you know. But the, you know, just the cultural, you know, way of thinking at the time was, you know, owning a house was, hey, that's just what you do, right? I mean, everyone wants to own a house. Um, You know, you you look at statistics and going back to the 60s, you know, 80 something percent of people in their late 20s were married and had kids, right? So that's kind of a demographic that wants to own a house. Um, Now that is maybe 30 percent of, You know, the people between the ages of 25 and 30. Uh, And the younger generation, again, I'm speaking in generalities. We're not everybody, but we're speaking in generalities. But, you know, they don't view home ownership as something quite as necessary or appealing. Uh, They want the amenities, they want the house, but they're just as happy to rent and not have to, you know, worry about, you know, fixing the roof and, you know, mowing the lawn and doing all those other things that, you know, that that come with, you know, ownership. And they also have the flexibility to move when they want and, and all those kind of things. So uh yeah. people want a single family houses, but whether you know I but I but I think the you know the rental model for them is good. The you know and the trick do you need for, own,
0: yeah do they need to own it? Maybe not.
1: Right. And you know and the trick is that a you know, vast majority of SFRs are owned by you know, mom and pop, small owners, um, you know, can institutions over the long term, you know, make it worth their while in terms of managing properties that are in different locations. And, you know, it it's, um, you know, there's there's a lot of companies that are trying to do that. And I think the, you know, the management of that is improving all the time through technology and data and research. You know, you talk to some of them and they've kind of said they you know they're getting the the management of properties single family rental properties down to a science uh, but it's still you know it's still not as easy as zoning an apartment building where there's 200 units all right next to each other
0: yeah uh, so yeah. i think
1: i think that sector will grow but it's not you know an unmitigated you know the the growth will come in fits and starts uh, fits and starts depending on the you know what's going on in the market
0: Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. And and something I was trying to find from just some of the notes that we were trading back and forth was looking for something that you had said um, about, you know, it's it's a lot of small changes, you know, they're incremental on the margins, but some of those, um, you know, incremental and changes on the margins can eventually moving, um, affecting trends over time. And and, and I'm paraphrasing, you could probably say it (laughs) much more eloquently than I can. But, uh, you know, I do see those changes, especially culturally from um, younger people and the idea of whether they need that desire to own a home and the pursuit of the American dream. And I guess that's making us question, you know, what is the American dream? Is it a 30-year fixed mortgage or is it that lifestyle of having a single family home? And, you know, and, and it's been proven that, you know, owning a single family home has been a great way to build wealth. Um, it's often an individual's lar- largest investment. Um, but you have to, or we ask ourselves, you know, a lot of times a house can be more of a liability than an asset, and certainly you can make money on it. But if you're going to make one large investment, does that always correlate with, you know, the piece of real estate that you would like? you and your family to live in sometimes yes but maybe an investment in another asset class may provide more wealth creation opportunities over over time um but that's a lot of cultural baggage that we have to unpack and just from my anecdotal experience from myself and talking to you know people my age plus or minus there's definitely less of a draw that they need to own a home but you know there's still that those cultural remnants that are there that certainly people if they can um, there, I think there is still a little bit of a status, um, with it. Um, and, but every time someone's getting ready to buy a home, I'm, cause I, I own, I own a home. Um, but sometimes when my wife and I are thinking about fixing something or the water heater goes out or we have to do some project and you're spending thousands of dollars, a lot of times I'm thinking, man, renting either a Single family home or a nice apartment somewhere seems a lot easier, um, a lot more efficient, and maybe even like financially um, a better move. But um, I think you know, to it, each their own. You
1: know, this is kind of funny because I just yesterday, an economist friend of mine posted something on LinkedIn about uh, how he was concerned that because the home ownership young generation, you know, the gen- millennials and Gen uh, Z were not buying homes at the same rate, that that was going to uh, affect their uh, ability to save because, you know, home ownership Mm -hmm. has been a way, you know, for wealth to build wealth and, and my, I commented on his post and, and I said, you know, know, the, the younger generation doesn't have the same, you know, bent as I was talking about a few minutes ago toward home ownership, but as far as, you know, what is, does that really mean that, um, you know, that they're not going to be able to build the same wealth uh, maybe, but I think, I think bigger factors are, you know, making, you know, how much money do you make in your job and how do you invest that money? Yeah. So if you have a good job and you're able to save and you invest in, you know, something reasonable, you know, put it in a mutual fund or something, you know, your wealth is, is going to go up uh, whether you own a home or not. And, you know, whether your wealth goes up based on a home i mean look historically the data is pretty clear that you know home prices tend to go up over time so you do but at the same time it depends on you know where and when you bought a house you know i I, uh my first house i bought in 1988 it was kind of a market peak the market you know after that hit a decline and you know house prices kind of you know leveled off and you know eventually they went up again but you know, if I had sold that house five, seven years later, you know, I wouldn't have made in, any money on it. You know, I was there yeah. for fifteen years, so after fifteen years, it had appreciated. But, but it's a timing thing and then a location thing. So, um, yeah, you know, it's
0: it's, it's interesting. interesting. It, it is interesting, <laughs> and, and there are there are still those social pressures out there, and I think that's honestly the bigger driver than anything of you, know, you see the peer pressure or of or the keeping up with the Joneses, and you know, someone buys a house and well do we want to buy a house and that's the next thing to do. And then, you know, uh, influence from, you know, parents of, Hey, are you going to buy a house? But, uh, it, it is going to be interesting. And we've been interviewing and asking some of, um, the, I guess the Gen Z folks that, that work, um, here at great capital and just so, some, some, other, um, acquaintances just on what their perception of owning a home. Um, and, and it is interesting. I think a lot of it is just a, a lot of, especially the Gen Z generation doesn't believe they'll ever have the, um, ability to afford a home and so I think some of them are just writing it off and that they would if they could but looking at where interest rates are the cost of housing and what they perceive as their prospects um, I think they're just a little pessimistic on the fact that it it may even be a um, possibility so um, well I I want I want to shift a little bit um, just to the market because there's a couple of things I want to get to kind of before we we run out of time Um, and so this is a little bit big picture, but, you know, 2021, second half of 2020 through 2021, incredible performance, especially in the multifamily sector. We've, see, we've seen an incredible slowdown starting the second half of 2022. I mean, absorption is at, you know, decade low levels. Kind of have to go back to 2009 to find uh, a point where we had absorption um, so slow. Um, rent growth has gone negative the last few months. Um can you tell us a little bit about how we went from just incredible household formation, rent growth, to then just bottoming out in terms of absorption in demand within really a couple month month period? And obviously there's a lot that's happened over the last 18 months, but um, if you could give us just a little kind of snapshot.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure I, I see it as bottoming, but let me just go back a little bit, right? So, yeah. you know, we had you know, after the financial crisis, we had a, a a very nice recovery in commercial real estate and multifamily in particular. Um, you know, rent growth and th- we saw starting in around 2013, 2014, you know, rent growth. Of, you know, was above the long-term, you know, two and a half, two point seven percent average annual growth, and it, it popped to about 5% in 2017. And, uh, but it was, you know, we had a good run and then of course the, uh, a a very steady right economic growth. We had not too high, not too low, the kind of Goldilocks, you know, 2% growth every year and things were kind of humming smoothly. Then of course the pandemic hit and there were lockdowns. And what we saw with multifamily was that, uh, there was a big, uh, migration from you know some of the downtown areas of the gateway markets particularly in New York San Francisco and Chicago uh, where a lot of people left and they went to markets that were less expensive uh, you know 22 million people lost jobs and so some of it was just hey I'm not making any money so I've got to find somewhere less expensive to live some of it was just, you know, hey, I don't have to go to the office, so I'm going to go hang out in Florida or something yeah. like that. And so you, you had this big migration. So there was, for a few months, kind of the market was kind of frozen, you know, rent growth kind of stopped. And, and But the demand remained strong, say, across the Sun Belt and some of the Western markets that continued to, you know, where people were going to. And you know, that didn't have the, you know, kind of shutdowns that they had in, in the big cities. And then in 2020, right? So I, I, I think I alluded to this before, um, you know, when the occupancy rate in, you know, markets down 10, 15%, it's like, wow, it's going to take them a long time to recover. But starting in 2021, the demand just became very strong across the entire country. We had, um, you know, it, it continued to be really strong, you know, uh, migration to, you know, the, the Southeast, the Southwest continued and population growth in places like Florida and Texas and Arizona were continued to be very strong, but at the same time, um, demand returned to the gateway markets and rent growth kind of took off. And in 2021 there, you know, our numbers show almost 600,000 apartment units were absorbed, which is by far the the highest on record. Uh, rent growth asking rents nationally rose um, just about 15% on average. And they were, you know, even more, they were 20% in, in a lot of places, uh, you know, Miami, Orlando, um, you know, some of the Texas markets and, you know, it was by far the the you know the the most the the best amount of rent growth. You know, the occupancy levels went up. We had a record high occupancy level of stabilized properties at ninety-six point two percent. And that continued into twenty twenty-two for a little bit. It's it's slowed down and then it really began to decelerate in the second half of twenty two. So
0: Hey Paul, just real quick. because I'm just remembering those times when you were coming out with some of that information. You know, especially in 2021. You know, in the you know, really in July and August when things were really peaking. Would people even believe you when you told them at first? You know, hey, you know, rent growth. You know, for a certain market is you know 20 percent, 30 percent. Were you having people having a hard time you know, actually believing first, <laughs> that at first?
1: You know, when when the numbers really started to pop um, was in probably the second quarter of 2021, you know, we get a monthly report when I, you know, I write a, we have a monthly publication yeah. that goes, you know, monthly rent growth uh, in the top 30 metros and national rent. And we, you know, our data team sends us a spreadsheet with all the numbers on it that, you know, we, that are, you know, inc- incorporated in the report, and when the numbers first started to pop, and we first started to see like double-digit percentage rent growth, you know, I was like, "Is this right?" You know, let's uh, <laughs> we have to double-check this, and we yeah, yeah, it's all right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, that. it was ask, it's kind of it hard to believe because yeah. we, there's no historical precedent for it, right? Yeah. Uh, rent growth, you know, when it was really really strong, was five percent. Um, you know, in some markets, would go over that, but you know, on a national level, five, six percent would have been wow! It's really, really you on know. fire. And then when you get up into you know double digits, it, it, it's you know, you have to you've never seen it before, so you have to wrap your your mind about around it. And you know, at be when it was first happening, the um, I think that most people were looking at migration. And, you know, because the, the, the markets that were doing the best were the ones where there was still ongoing, you know, migration, people moving there. Um, but at the same time, the markets that were losing population that were, you know, there was a lot of out migration from, uh, they were also recovering and rents were turning around there. And it became apparent that. You know, what was happening was it was more than just a migration story, it was also a household formation story. So, coming out of the pandemic, uh, you know, after we had we were down 22 million jobs, uh, we started, you know, the job recovery. So, people started getting jobs back. Uh, Wage growth was unusually strong. So, companies were having a hard time finding workers. So, they had to increase salaries, uh, especially in low end. Uh, low-wage jobs, you know, retail, hospitality, uh, jobs that suddenly they couldn't really fill it, you know, 8 $9 an hour more. I I, know I see Target now just announced that they were, now they're going to have, um, everyone's going to be making $24 an hour. Wow. Um, Walmart, I think I, I read a story saying, you know, they're going to start, you know, their minimum pay is going to be like $17 an hour. Um, you know, meanwhile, states are debating, oh, do I raise the minimum wage to 11 $12 an hour? Well, you know but are, it, it's
0: there's like so much demand
1: for yeah there's so much demand for workers that you know but you know the point is that you know wage growth put money in people's pockets plus you had government stimulus and people had saved money during the pandemic because those uh, people who were working you know they were making money but they had nowhere to spend it so you yeah. know so the savings rate popped up to like 15% and so Household balance sheets were really strong. We had, um, I think Moody's uh, estimated something like $2.7 million of additional savings between the first quarter of 2020 and sometime in 2022. So people had money to spend on apartments. So what did they do? One of the things they did was they went out and they created new households. People moved away from their, you know, younger people, people in their 20s and 30s moved out of their parents' house, moved into an apartment. People who were you know, in roommate situations, living in, you know, with multiple roommates, they were able to go out and move on their own because their financial situation had brightened. So that contributed all, you know, all these things contributed to uh, a, a surge in demand. And and now that surge, that pent up demand that came through, you know, after the pandemic um, is, is slowing down. I, I, I haven't seen any numbers in our data that would indicate to me that it's negative. Now, rent growth has started to turn negative, uh, but just a little bit, not you know. Yeah, and um, I w- would suspect that rents are going to be flat or slightly negative for the next few months until we get to the the spring lease up season. Uh, but our our forecast for the year is that you know nationally rents are going to grow. And most of the major metros are going to see, you know, two to 4% rent growth. Uh, it, 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 um, for there, the wild card is the economy obviously. So, you know, we talked about the wage growth and people buying things and that contributed to, you know, the surge in inflation, which caused the federal reserve to raise interest rates in an attempt to slow down the economy, you know, push up unemployment to cool the labor market and all those things that, you know, we've been talking about. So inflation has come down. If just real quick, if the, if we have a a soft landing, as, as we would expect, our forecast is for kind of a soft landing uh, recession in the second half of the year. Um, we could probably get away with this and have not too much demand, uh, um, harm to multifamily demand or demand for other types of real estate. If the economy hits, you know, a a rough patch and growth is, you know, negative to any significant degree, Mm -hmm. then that will have a bigger impact on multifamily. And that might cause our forecast to, you know, cause what happens to be a little bit worse than our forecast
0: and so and i was just going to get to the this the the most latest um report from from Yardi the the winter 2023 multifamily report and you know the the headline is you know multifamily outlook hopeful amid volatile economy and from what i took from from the report and others and just kind of recent reporting is that uh, it looks like there's a window to return to normalcy that we're in a period of of almost rectification, you know, the uh, pendulum swung one way, now it's swinging the other to try to, you know, balance us out just a little bit. Um, And with a, it sounds like a soft landing that you are all predicting that could facilitate um, that, I guess, new sense of normalcy. I guess, is that the the conclusion that we're gonna kind of get back to a standard, you know, 3% um, average rent growth? I mean, that was kind of the standard assumption for the last decade. Do we see that we're going to get back to a standard 3% over the next decade? Or do we see a little bit, I guess, higher rate of growth with a little bit higher inflation?
1: Yeah, I'm not forecasting, you know, a decade out. That's a little bit hard. But I I do think that what we're likely to see is kind of a soft landing as opposed to like a 2008 type crash. Um, And, you know, there's a bunch of reasons that I think that, you know, number one is, Right now, unemployment is three and a half percent, right? Let's assume that we're going to see some increase in that and some, you know, kind of softening of the job market and wages. Uh, It's still, there would have to be a significant, If Let's say, you know, unemployment goes up to four and a half percent, you know, by historical standards. I mean, it's not good that people are going to lose jobs, but by historical standards, it's still a pretty solid unemployment rate. Uh, same thing, you know, on, on the multifamily uh, level, right? So right now, over the last year, I mentioned, you know, that occupancies had gone down. So they went from like 96 nationally, they went from like 96.2% to 95.4% in, in late into 2022. Um, that sounds bad, but you know, 95.4% historically is a pretty decent. So we're coming, you know, we're, again, big picture, is that even if we see a little more softening, you know, by historical standards, it's, it's not terrible. You know, rent growth, um, is obviously a problem. The affordability of apartments has kind of gone down. Um, you know, the, a greater number of, uh, households are paying more than 30% for their income on rent, which is kind of the traditional standard of, you know, being house you know, having, you know, kind of a, a housing uh, poor being, a, uh, affordability problem, uh, and so the ability to keep raising rents is going to be diminished because, you know, people are stretched to what they can afford, but I don't see again, that there's going to be enough, um, of an increase in vacancies, that there's going to be, you know, the economy is going to uh, be, have enough of a downturn to create uh, a kind of a, you know, a hard landing, a, a 2008 type, you know, cra- housing crash.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we'd have to go through quite a bit of you know household, just negative household growth. Right. And, and, household and, and I mentioned, Brilliant. you know, that,
1: you know, people had savings, you know, that they don't have 2.7 trillion, you know, it's probably closer to 1 trillion now. Uh, so that number is decelerating, and eventually that might run out. But you know, there's still a trillion dollars of excess savings, you know, sloshing around that will help prevent a hard landing.
0: Yeah, Paul, I, I think I we may have gone this entire conversation. I could be incorrect without really talking about interest rates that much. And I feel like every conversation has always been about interest rates. Yeah. So I, I don't know. How, I don't know how we've gone around it, but I, I want to get your your thoughts on, you know, this idea that, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, short term, a lot of bridge loans that were originated in um, kind of the last year. So last 18 months, almost all have, you know, are floating rate terms. Um, and a lot of those are going to be coming to term um, over the next um, another 18 months, really kind of 12 to, 12 to 18 months. The concern is with cap rates up and a wise kind of dragging along with increased expenses is that, you know, the valuations um, are not going to pencil and there are going to be some owners that um, are going to be relatively underwater and they either are going to have to bring some capital to the table to close um, or they're, or they're going to possibly enter foreclosure. How concerned are you with that? And let's say it is an issue. How I got, let's I'm just curious of playing it out of how accommodating the banks may be because we saw a lot of accommodation during the pandemic with single family homeowners um, with a lot of forbearance Do you see the banks being flexible you know just talk about the situation we may be seeing in the next you know year or so or is it just or is it not not to do about nothing and and it may not even be an issue okay
1: there's a lot there's a lot of questions in there i hopefully i'll get to all of them but yeah um but So yes, there will be an increase in delinquencies and you identified some of the the major issues. So in 2020, 21, borrowers were largely taking out floating rate loans. They were taking advantage of like super low rates and interest rate caps were cheap. And they were thinking, oh, you know, in a couple of years, I'll refinance for even more money. I'll take even more money out of the property because, you know, income's going up so much. Uh, That was kind of thinking and in 2021 you know there was a record 45 billion dollars of clos uh, collateralized loan obligations uh form of cmbs uh originated or fl- issued and um, most of the cmbs that it was issued or a lot of the cmbs that was issued was floating rate uh so you had a lot of that short term debt taken out at very low interest rates like 3% um and that those loans are starting to come due now and the prevailing interest rate is, you know, five, 6%, you know, it was even 6%. The rates have come down a little bit in the last month or so. So it's maybe less of, a, you know, now we're in the fives instead of the sixes. But still, um, if you had a a property and I, I I wrote something about this a few months ago and, you know, I, I took a property that had a, you know, a $10 million property that had a $7 million loan on it um, if you refinance that loan, let's say the you know the seven million dollar existing loan is is three percent, and you refinance that at six percent, and keep the monthly payments the same, you know that same property would qualify for four point nine million. So you've got like a two point one million, you know, kind of gap to you know to finance that you have to come up with somewhere. Uh, now that's just an example, but you can kind of see what the situation was yeah. now same kind of thing happened after the the global financial crisis a lot of properties you know there was what everybody called you know the extend and pretend and the banks just didn't want to have defaults so they just let you know borrowers make payments and didn't do anything um as far as you know the question of what banks are going to do um just from my understanding you know talking to to people in the banking world is that You know, banks are going to work with borrowers um, to the extent that they can, but they're not going to do it for free. So, you know, going back, you know, to the last crisis where, you know, banks let borrowers, you know, drag out the payments. um, I think banks are willing to work with them, but they want something in exchange, you know, more, you know, more reserves, more, you know, terms of some type, some extra equity, uh, you know, thrown in they want something you know they want you know the balances paid down to some extent uh, so but there definitely will be an increase in, in delinquencies and you know right now the default rate in on multifamily is extraordinarily low if we you know CMBS um delinquencies on multifamily something like 2% you know 1.92% something like that and for the GSEs for life companies It's like less than a quarter of a percentage point. So let's assume that we're going to see some pop in delinquencies. I still think that, you know, that that it's we're far from kind of a crisis, you know, kind of like we had in the the last uh, uh, downturn.
0: Yeah, I I can see it being more the perception than the reality of you know. I can see some, and we've already seen a couple um, large portfolios that are in distress, um, that are delinquent, and um, along with you know the redemptions and some of the large uh, privately traded REITs. But you know, some of those um, those stories get the headlines and people talk about it, even though it's maybe not the whole story. Um, But I I imagine we're going to continue to see those happen over the next year or so. Right.
1: So, I you know one. You know, there are you know, I read about one uh portfolio the other day, which was an office portfolio, not a multifamily, but you know, they have a payment problem because you know, again, they refinance at a low level. And office is a little harder to refinance because you know, banks aren't really looking to put you know new office loans on their books right now. Yeah. Uh so you know, there are property types that have bigger, you know, office and retail in particular. Are, are have and, and even to some extent, hotels are going to have a hard time refinancing. If we're just talking about multifamily, that's in a better position. You know, another thing is that, you know, old multifamily loans that were originated, you know, let's say you got a five, seven, 10-year loan coming due. Uh, those loans have the benefit of all that rent growth that we've seen yeah. over the last decade. So that gives them a little bit of an extra cushion to kind of make up for you know the the higher rate. So I think except in extreme circumstances, you know, there are submarkets, although you know largely multifamily still doing well. There are some submarkets, there are some areas, some properties that you know that that are performing poorly. Um, so you know, those are the properties I think that are going to be affected. But you know, most properties should be able to get through this. You know, the vast majority of properties I think should be able to get through this without resorting to you know default.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned um, some other uh, CRE asset classes, just some of the other food groups, and and just real quick before um, we, we we close out, you had a recent piece on on self storage. Um, self storage operators optimistic despite headwinds. I've always considered I'm not an expert in self storage, and um, but one thing I've always um, heard about self storage is that it's very um, it's a very recession resistant asset class. Um, it does relatively well in a variety of different types of economies because as you have uh, expansions, people are buying more stuff, need more space. Um, in re- in economic retractions, oh, I've had to downsize. I need to move my put my stuff somewhere. But I guess give us maybe uh, a brief um, oversight on, I guess, how the self-storage market is um, performing and a little bit of an outlook. Yeah, the self-storage
1: market industry has been one of the, you know, the real estate sectors that, you know, has performed the best over the last few years. And, you know, going back to, I don't know, 20 years or so, if you look at the public market, you know, self-storage REITs have outperformed every other asset class. Uh, over a long period of time, and it's not even close. You know, the industry was, affected. you know, obviously the, the pandemic was a big thing. And in uh, um, for every asset class, and it did, there were some benefits to self-storage. So one of the drivers of demand for self-storage um, was work from home. You know, people um started you know they created need to store you know office people you know home office things and you know people had to move furniture out create offices at home um you know more businesses who have trouble uh getting industrial space you know using Mm self-storage um the the percentage of um households that use self-storage has consistently increased over time and it it took a, a bit of a jump as well in, uh, 2021. So, uh, the self-storage street rates, which asking rates, uh, jumped, you know, 15%, you know, at at the peak during, you know, 2021, 2022 street rates have started to come down, but, you know, the income of self-storage operators, uh, continues to be strong because they, um, are raising rates on existing customers, people are staying longer uh, as an average. So, you know, the average self storage, you know, might've been 12 to 18 months. um, And now that number is creeping up to, you know, 18 to 24 months. So each additional month, you know, when you have a short term thing uh, like that, each additional month, you know, kind of creates more demand. So occupancy rates, you know, net NOIs of self storage properties uh, have been very strong. You know, the operators expect this year to be not quite as good as the last two years, but they're expecting, you know, six to ten percent, you know, revenue growth this year.
0: And, you know, the other th- thing that, you know, I've learned about self-storage <clears throat> is that um, you know, it's a very um I guess, you know, balkanized industry where still most of the ownership, uh, at least recently, has been largely, you know, mom and pop individual owners. Um, And there hasn't been a lot of consolidation, but I've seen more and more, I guess, consolidation stories or self-storage funds, you know, consolidating portfolios with self-storage. Do you see that changing the asset class um, at all? And and I guess, do you see that trend um, continuing? Yeah, because, uh, yes, you know, the
1: you know, REITs and and, and large institutions, um, you know, have been, you know, it's a long-term thing. They've been rolling up smaller properties for a long time and, you know, it's a big industry. So, you know, they will continue to do that. And I think when, you know, I mentioned that, you know, REIT returns for self-storage were so good. I think investors looking at that um, saying, hey, you know, why aren't I investing in storage? Why aren't I doing that? And yeah, you know, one of the drawbacks to institutional investment in the sector uh, was that you know it's hard to spend a lot of money, right? Each individual self storage
0: exactly. Yeah, property. You know, if you've got a billion
1: dollar fund, you know, you know, you're going to buy five million dollar properties. You know, that's not terribly efficient or glamorous or anything like that. But um, I think that the returns and you know, sort of the competition when you're trying to buy you know, office, um, industrial, and multifamily, which are the two sectors that everybody wants to be in, you know, it's hard to, it's, you have to pay a high price in those sectors and you've got a lot of competition. So, you know, that drives some of that into self storage. Now, another area I mentioned we had, you know, an RV and boat sector yeah. um, database. That's even like a small subset of self storage, but and but it there's a lot of demand for rV and boat storage RV sales boat uh, motor sales, you know over the last couple of years have hit record highs and you know they're near record highs. Uh, a lot of um, homeowner associations don't allow you to store them on your properties. A lot of people don't have the space to store them on their properties even if they could uh, so they need you know, there's 6 million RV or 6 million motor boats or, you know, so you got 6 million RVs and, you know, a couple million motor boats in, in America that are registered. Uh, they need to, you know, a lot of them need to be stored. There just aren't a lot of places to store them. And there are only a couple of, you know, in our database, we track, you know, more than a thousand, uh, properties and only, a very, very tiny percentage of them are owned by anybody that owns more than one or two. Really? 95% of them are, are more owned by somebody that just owns one or two of them. And I think that's a sector where there's a lot of opportunity to create, you know, kind of an institutional ownership to, you know, branding and, and, you know, to roll up a lot of properties. I think that's. Something we'll see in the next few years. It's you know still in the early stages, but it's definitely an opportunity there, in my opinion.
0: I think that that makes a lot of sense. Kind of getting back to some of those um, just demographic trends of um, the baby boomer regeneration and millennials. Um, the baby boomers are retiring, getting that RV or or a boat, and millennials, whether it's van life or uh, you going to and kids want to take the kids out skiing or whatever, getting into you know peak uh, earning years. I, 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 I think it makes a lot of sense and definitely uh, just uh, personal, personal anecdote. You know, I've thought about maybe buying like a, you know, like a bass boat or something, but I'm like, but where am I going to, the question is, where am I going to store? So I have
1: hours to store these things. And then when they store them, you know, then the question is, do you, you know, are there facilities available? And some facilities are just like big parking lots. Some of them have, um, a canopy and some of them, you know, there's a growing number, uh, of indoor climate-controlled storage spaces because yeah. people don't want they these boats and RVs cost you know they can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars people spend a lot of money on them they don't want them sitting out you know deteriorating because of the weather uh, so yeah the, you know that that's part of the opportunity not just to own facilities but to create kind of higher level facilities that have more services and you know the that's where you know an institutional owner
0: you know could come in and Kind of add value. Yeah, I, I, it's, exci- I, I ex- it's exciting. It's exciting because I've got a bu- bunch of anecdotes where that makes sense. My uh, my mom lives in Tucson, Arizona, has an RV, and uh, she's she's like she's begging for. There's one RV service center in storage. It's air conditioned. They have the full service. They'll take care of your RV. <laughs> you drop in, you pick it up. But she's like, there needs to be one on. Yeah, you know, I think whether it's the south side of Tucson or the other side of Tucson, just knowing that it would do so well. So. Uh, I think the anecdotes are are lining up um, with the data, and that that's really exciting. Well, well, Paul, we we've kept you. Oh, we're over time. We've kept you really long. You've been really patient with us. Um, these yeah. We really didn't even get insights. to some of the things we were going to talk about, but that's. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I know. The, 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 all I could think all I could think of is that we're going to have to have you back on it sometime soon because there's we could go into just a lot more detail on some of these topics, and then yeah, there's areas we didn't even get to. Um, but I thought it was it was a great conversation, um, and so thank you again for coming on, and thank you for all the work that you're doing over Yardy Matrix and the whole Yardy Matrix team. Because, again, we really appreciate um, the research that you are all doing, and uh, we are we are following it very closely. And if you ever wondered if you're appreciated and who's reading these reports, we are doing it. And again, it's 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 really great work that you're all doing.
1: Thanks, sir. I appreciate the uh, the compliment. And absolutely
0: happy to you know
1: talk to you and you know happy to come back sometime and do it again
0: wonderful well before we go paul um if you'd like for people to get in touch with you um what would be what's a good way for them to do that or with yardy matrix um yeah what's so a good way you can do-
1: read our publications at yardymatrix.com publications we have a blog yardymatrix.com blog uh, and You know, you can email me at paul.fiorilla at yardy.com. And, you know, so I'm happy to, you know, uh, if you read any of our publications, you know, my name, if you want to spell my name, you know, my contact information is is on the website. It's on the publications. And, um, yeah, I always love to hear from readers and to get feedback.
0: Wonderful. All right. Paul Fiorella from Yardi Matrix, thank you again. Have a great rest of your day. And thanks, everyone, for watching The Great Report.